morning, Sister O'Fam. How's everybody doing? You're here? It's good? Glad you're here. I'm excited to wrap up uh, this series called Paradox. We've been talking about some contradictions that we come across as we read through Scripture sometimes. We've talked about belief and doubt. We've talked about strength and weakness. Last week, we talked about faith and works. And just how sometimes these, these concepts come up that don't seem to fit together, and we try to rationalize them and, and figure them out, and sometimes we need, need to learn to just maybe hold them in tension, maybe recognize it's not an either-or situation, it's a both-and. So we're going to wrap that series up today. Next week, we're going to start a new series uh, focused on the presence of God and what that looks like from the beginning in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, all the way to Abraham and Joseph, and then for us today. And so uh, we have some reading guides. If you want to read ahead, the scriptures that we're going to be using for that series, those guides are out there in the lobby, and they'll be available online as well. Uh, so today, we're going to wrap up by talking about mercy and wrath. Wrath, yay. No, it's not, it's not a fun subject, but it's something I think we need to uh, dig into because I think this can be one of the most frustrating and confusing things, both for Christians and non-Christians. Uh, when we approach scripture and we, we read and we find some things in there that are somewhat unsettling and we kind of go, I don't, I don't see how all of this uh, fits together. Uh, part of it is because of our tendency as human beings to uh, sort of classify people based on something that we learn about them. You learn one thing about a person and you, you fill in the gaps with a lot of assumptions that if this is true, then all of this must be true. Uh, for example, let's say you meet, you meet somebody here uh, locally, and the first thing you find out about them is that they're a Patriots fan. There are some assumptions that probably begin to form in your mind about what kind of person this might be, uh, because there is some tension between, you know, Colts fans and Patriots fans historically. And you might think some things about them just because of that one thing that you learn. If you're a Patriots fan, I hope you know we love you. We're glad you're here. Um, everybody needs Jesus. Uh, the... I, th I think we, we do this politically too. If you meet somebody and the first thing you find out about them is that they're a Republican, then you, you fill in the gaps and you start to assume a whole lot of things about them based on that one piece of information. If you find out they're a Democrat, you start to fill in the gaps and you assume a lot about them based on that one piece of information. How do you feel when people do that to you? They find out one thing about you and make all these assumptions. We kind of go, hey, that's not really fair. There's more to me than this one thing that I think or say or believe. That's not, that's not really a fair judgment to say like, well, all of this must be true as well. People are more complex than that, right? But, but we do this to one another, and I think we do this with God as well. And so sometimes we read scripture, and we, we come across a quality or characteristic of God, and we sort of, everything then has to like fit into this, this box that we create about who God is, his nature and character. So one thing we learn early on, when, if you're growing up in church or you just come to the Bible pretty fresh, one thing you learn is that God is love, right? God is love. That, that is his defining characteristic. But what we do is we take this cultural definition of love and we tag it onto God and say, well, God must be like this. And our current culture's definition of love is that if you love me, you will not stand in the way of my happiness, right? If you love me, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna do whatever makes me happy. You're gonna let me do what makes me happy. You're gonna encourage me to do what makes me happy. That's our culture's definition of love. But we read in scripture that God seems to interfere with people's happiness sometimes, because we're like, well, that doesn't sound loving. So, what, so either, either he's not loving or these other things aren't true or, or then we start to have some conflict in, in our understanding of who God really is. And so when we come to these concepts of mercy and wrath and, and we read that, that God is, is just merciful and loving and then we see some of the, the violent and, and kind of uh, 
destructive judgmental things that happen in scripture. I mean, you don't have to get very far into the Bible. I mean, uh, Genesis chapter six, and God looks at the whole world and he goes, it is so bad. I'm I'm gonna wipe out everybody except this one family and just start over with them. And you kind of go, whoa, that's, man, that's, that's pretty harsh. And then you get to the book of Exodus and you see the 10 plagues that come upon the nation of Egypt. And you're like, man, some of those are just horrible. Like frogs everywhere. I mean, really. And then, culminates in the worst one, the death of the firstborn. And you're like, man, what kind of God does this? And you get to the book of Joshua and, and God sends these people into this land that he has promised to them, but other people live there. And God starts telling them, hey, you got to drive these people out. This is your land. I want you to push these other people out. And you're like, man, what is going on? All these battles and this violence seems to be happening. And, and you go, is, is that happening in the name of God? And is this the loving God that we thought he was? And, 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 we, and then we get to the New Testament And you hear Jesus say something like Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And we go, man, this this seems like a different God than the one that we just read about in the Old Testament. Like maybe there's two gods or maybe God changed. Somewhere between the Old Testament and New Testament, he had a wardrobe change. He came back out, he was a completely different person. But then you get to come back to Deuteronomy chapter six and one of the the most repeated prayers that the Jews prayed then and even still today, it's called the Shema and it goes like this. It starts this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. one, There's just one God. He he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So how do we we deal with, how do we wrestle with these concepts of, of God's mercy and his wrath? sort of showing up. And part of it is, is, is a superficial reading. A superficial reading of the Old Testament will tell you, well, the Old Testament God is angry and mean and vengeful, right? And, and a superficial reading of the New Testament will tell you, well, the New Testament God through Jesus is kind and loving and, and gentle and forgiving. And, and what we need to do is dig a little deeper to understand that, that there's a lot of the loving, kind, gentle, forgiving God in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of the, the judge, judgment and, and justice and wrath of God in the New Testament. God doesn't change. But how do, we, how do we reconcile these two opposing ideas, this paradox of the mercy and wrath of God? Friends, this is important for Christians, and it's important for non-Christians. There's a lot of people who are outside the church because of this. They've heard the stories of of the battles and the violence and the war that seem to have been conducted in the name of God. And they go, if if that's what God is like, I don't want anything to do with him, right? And for some of us, it's been a struggle. I've wrestled with this in my own life, in my own faith. What what does this mean? How How do we work through this? So today, I hope what we can do is create a little bit of clarity. What I hope to do is encourage you to dig a little deeper on your own, to do some reading and studying on your own as well. And, and ultimately, that, that we come to a place where we understand God better. We see him more clearly um, through a clearer lens of Scripture. Ready? Let's, let's do it. Uh, Exodus chapter 34 is where we're going to start. This is what God says about himself to Moses. Moses has asked to see the glory of God. And so God is going to show him just enough to not kill him. <laughs> And so he does, and and this is what we see in Exodus 34, verse six. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
And we're like, yay, there is a merciful God in the Old Testament. There he is. He's talking about his mercy and his compassion and his patience and his kindness. And then the next line, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God describes himself in one sentence as both merciful and wrathful, or at least he, he administers justice to those who are evil and do wrong and destroy. How can he be both? Well, first, what I, I'd like for us to explore a couple of misunderstandings about wrath that I, th- I think make it difficult for us to, um, to reconcile these things. Uh, and so we'll talk about those misunderstandings, then we're going to talk about mercy and how, how that fits together, and then hopefully end up in a place where we understand better and, and we have something uh, to do today. Uh, because, friends, the, we are called, the people of God are called. From, from the very beginning, when God called Abraham, even before that, when he created Adam and Eve, he created them to reflect his nature and character to the world. Adam and Eve blew it, so he picks Abraham and his whole family, the Israelites, and, and the Israelites are supposed to reflect God's nature and character to the world around them. And the church today is the family of God, and our mission and, and our purpose is to reflect the nature and character of God to the world around us. And if we have a big misunderstanding about who God really is, we're not gonna do that very well. So hopefully we can clear that up and reflect him more clearly. So one uh, under, uh, misunderstanding I think we have about the wrath of God starts with this, this question. Did God command or condone genocide? Have you ever wrestled with that? Have you heard? In some form, you've, you've heard that question. You've maybe read through the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is uh, the people are under the leadership of this military leader, Joshua, and God has told them, hey, this is the land that I promised to your ancestor Abraham 430 years ago, and now you're coming to take possession of this land. But there are people who live here, and they've lived here for a long time, and you're gonna have to kick them out. And so Joshua goes in and begins to kick out these people that live in the land. And how do you kick them out? I mean, you can invite them to leave, but how many people are gonna take you up on that? I mean, my family's been here for generations. No, I'm not leaving. Okay, well, I guess we're going to war then, right? So there's a lot of war and violence and death. And we come across phrases that sound like genocide. We come across phrases where it says, they wiped out everybody. There was no one left alive. We're like, that, that, that sounds extreme. That sounds bad. How, how do you reconcile that with a merciful and loving God? Did God command that? Did God condone that? One, one thing I think we need to understand is that um, there were other cultures at this time uh, who have recorded histories, and, and we can read the histories of other cultures and compare them to what we read about God's people at this time as well. And uh, who writes the history books? The winners, right? The winners of the battles write the history books, and so they get to say um, what, that, what that victory looked like. And it was really common to read this kind of language in other ancient Near Eastern histories where they would say, man, we, we came into this, this enemy territory and we wiped them all out. We killed them all. No one left alive. And then a few pages later, you read about them interacting with those very people. They said they just wiped out. And you're like, wait, hang on a second. I thought you wiped them all out, but they're still here. And so what, what we see is that what they would do is they would exaggerate, they would, they would sort of add this hyperbole to their stories because it, it made their victory sound decisive and made them sound really powerful. But they would use this like extreme language of we wiped them all out when, when really what they did was they, they destroyed the enemy's army, right? They destroyed the army and, and conquered them decisively. And so when we see this language, it happens in Joshua too. Joshua um, goes in and, and they'll, they'll fight this battle and, and they'll win decisively. And the language is, we wiped them all out and there was no one left alive. And then a few chapters later, 
you'll see Israelites interacting with these people that Joshua said he wiped out. And you're like, wait, I thought, you, I thought you killed them all. Well, no, they didn't kill them all. They destroyed, they defeated the army and it was a decisive victory. And, and they sort of used some of this hyperbole that was very common at the time to say, we, we wiped them all, we killed them all. So some of that is what's happening uh, here at the time when you, you read through Joshua and you see all these battles. Another thing that's happening is um, God, when God looked at the culture of the Canaanites and the, the, their pagan religion, what he saw was a cancer that was eating away at humanity. Their culture was really, really bad. I mean, we look at different cultures now or, or government systems or, or some you know, oppressive forms of authority and leadership, and we go, man, that's, that's so bad. You look at North Korea and you look at a lot of the governments of Africa, African nations, and you go, man, that's really, really bad there. What happens today is, is, is such a, a, a purified form of what it was like in the ancient Near East. I mean, they, there, there were no human rights at the time. There, if you were a woman or a child or a slave, I mean, you, you had no right. You were, you were dirt. You were lower than animals. And they treated you that way. And their, their pagan worship often led them to do things like sacrifice their own children to a false god. We don't hear about stuff like that today. And God looked at this, this culture that was a cancer, this pagan worship that was sacrificing children. And he said, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. So he commands Joshua to go in. He never commanded Joshua to kill everyone in Canaan. He commanded him to drive them out of the land. And that driving them out involved battle. And, they, and the soldiers would fight and the Israelites would win. When, when, they were, when they were faithful to God, they would win. When they were unfaithful to God, they would lose. And they drove out a lot of the people through, through battle. And, and some of that is God sort of like trying to put it into some of these cultures that were perpetuating these really evil uh, societies. And um, a, lot, a lot of the, the kind of ancient Near Eastern like hyperbole of like we, we wiped them all out. So part of us, we, 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 we do a superficial reading of, of some of the Old Testament, like the, the top 10 hits, you know, and you go, man, there's some really bad stuff there. So what I would encourage you to do is dig through and read through uh, the book of Joshua. And there's definitely some violence in there and it's unsettling and it's upsetting. And some of it was not under God's command at all, just people being people and hurting each other. Um, but did God command and condone genocide? Uh, there's no evidence of that in scripture. The next question I think we need to wrestle with is, um, does God send people to hell? What, what does that mean? What is hell? What does that look like? Does God send people there? How do you, if, if, if hell is real, how do you get there? Like what happens to make you be in hell? Uh, so the concept of hell is very biblical. Uh, it's, it's described, especially in First Thessalonians, as, as a place of separation from God. You're just cut off from the presence of God, his, his blessing, his peace, his joy. And how, how do you, so how do you get there? So there's a lot of uh, passages we could look at. I just chose one from Romans chapter one. We're gonna look at um, what this looks like for people to, to cut themselves off or to be cut off from the presence of God and, and what that means and how, you, how that happens and what's God's role in all of that. Uh, so uh, in Romans chapter one, uh, Paul is going to uh, talk about the wrath of God and judgment. Let's start in verse 18. Remember, this is New Testament talking about the wrath of God. So if you thought there was no wrath in the New Testament, here it is. It's, it's actually all over the place. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So first, Paul says, God's wrath is against sin. It's, it's against sin. 
God's, God's wrath is against the power of sin and its destructive ability in the life of humans and their relationships with each other and their relationships with God. God is opposed to our opposition of his rule and reign. From the very beginning, God told Adam and Eve, hey, like, I love you, I've created this beautiful place for you, I wanna be in relationship with you, and as a part of that, I, get, I have to be the one who decides what's good and bad. I have to have the authority to tell you what's right and wrong. And that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was all about. And when Adam and Eve ate from that tree, what they were doing was saying, no, we wanna be the ones who decide what's good and bad for ourselves. We wanna have that power. And because of them choosing to have their own authority over what's good and bad for their lives, they were expelled from the garden, they were cut off, from the presence of God. And so Paul uh, comes along and he says, that sin, that, that power that's destructive, that causes us to want to be the rulers of our own lives, that, that falls under the wrath of God. So what does God do? How does God respond to these people? Here's, here's how Paul describes it in verses 24, 26, 28. He uses this one phrase uh, three times, and it goes like this, therefore God gave them up. He'll, he'll talk about some of the sins they committed and he'll say, because they, they're, they're living like this, therefore God gave them up. And then he lists some more sins, really awful things. And because they're doing this, then God gave them up. So basically the, the picture Paul is painting is God is telling these people, hey, if, if that's the way you wanna go, if you want to be rulers of your own lives, if you wanna decide for yourself what's good and bad, I can tell you what's down that road and it's horrible, but I won't stop you. I won't stop you. If that's the direction you wanna go, I won't stop you. And he gave them up. He allowed them to go down that road away from him, cut off from his presence, cut off from his blessing, cut off from his peace and joy. He gave them up. And here's, he wraps it up uh, from chapter one like this, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul would say in, in Romans uh, one that there is something in all human beings that have this sense that, that we're no good on our own. We need someone else to decide for us what's right and wrong. Paul said, we, we sort of know that. Human beings just know that. And so when we choose to reject that authority and take authority for ourselves, he says, like, we know it. We, we know that that's not how we're created to live. And Paul would say, they even know that such things, practicing such things uh, brings death, but they, they won't let go of this desire to be in control and have authority over my own life. So then he goes on in chapter two, uh, he starts like this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Paul is saying, all right, you guys, you all read this list of all these evil things these, these people did and are doing that put them under the wrath of God. And you're like, oh, those people, those people are horrible. Like, I can't, believe, I can't believe God hasn't just wiped them out already. They're, I mean, they really, they really do deserve the wrath of God. And Paul's like, well, hang on a second. How are you any different? How are you any better? Have you lived a life free from sin? Paul would say in chapter three, no one is righteous. No, no one is righteous. No one has lived sinless. And anyone who has, who has sinned is under the power of sin. Paul, Paul says to these, these people who are judging all of those whose, whose lives are, are worse, whose sins are worse than theirs, and saying, you fall under the same judgment. Here's, here's uh, what he says in verse two. For we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Paul says, all of us 
are under judgment. From the very first time you sin, you fall under the wrath of God. That's, that's just how it is because God's wrath is against sin. And if we choose the power of sin, I want to decide for myself what's right and wrong, we fall under the wrath of God. We want to be the ones who decide, right? Thankfully, this is not the end of the story. Thankfully, there is a way. God has made a way for us to experience mercy. Through Jesus Christ, God built a bridge from the power of sin to life in the spirit. And this is what Paul goes on to talk about in the book of Romans, especially chapter eight, the difference between living under the power of sin or, or the sinful nature and the power of the spirit. And Paul's saying, I mean, this is, this is, really, no, this is really no contest I mean, if you look at life over here and you look at life over here, it's, it's no contest. But the only way through is to put our trust and faith in Jesus. And God, in his mercy and kindness, has created that way. In fact, God's wrath against sin is a holy expression of his love for sinners. So God's wrath is not against sinners. God loves sinners. But God, God hates sin. Sin is destructive. It breaks relationships. It destroys people. His wrath is against sin. He loves sinners. And because he loves sinners, he must punish evil. Isn't that how it should work? Like if, 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 if I see my kids, you know, and when, when they were younger, they were the same size, they were, they were not the same size. Now they're the same size and this doesn't happen as much, but the, the bigger one could, could, could dominate the, the smaller one. That's how it would work. And so if I saw my older son, and I don't think he ever did this, but if I saw him like just wailing on his little brother, and, and my concept of love was, love is, you know, I'll, whatever makes you happy, I want to support and do that. And I could look at him, he's just smiling and pounding on his brother, and I'd be like, you know what, whatever makes you happy, buddy. You know, I just want to support, you just, you be you, and if this is you right now, you know, knock yourself out, knock your brother out, whatever. Is that a good father? No, if I, if I see destruction happening in my family, if I am a loving father, not only do I love the one who's getting beat on, I love the one who's doing the beating and I say, you've got to stop. And there have to be consequences for this kind of behavior. This is not who we're made to be. God's, God's wrath and his judgment on sin is an expression of his love for sinners. And, and friends, we like that when we're the ones who receive the mercy. We don't like that when it's other people who are getting mercy that we think don't deserve it. The classic case of this is the story of Jonah. You guys remember Jonah? What do you remember about Jonah? He got swallowed by a big fish and was in the fish for three days. There's so much more to that story. Why did he get swallowed by a fish? So God had identified this nation, uh, the city of Nineveh, and these were like the worst people on the planet at the time, like, like Vegas times 20. Like it was just so horrible. What happened in Nineveh should have stayed in Nineveh. Like it was really bad there. And God said, it's so bad. We, we've got to stop this. And so he tells Jonah, Jonah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe Nineveh out. And Jonah's like, yes, I've been waiting for this. They deserve to be wiped out. But first, Jonah, what I really want them to do is repent. What I would love to see happen is for them to change. So I want you to go to them with this message that if, if they will repent, I'll spare them. If they won't repent, I'm going to wipe them out. And Jonah's like, no, I'm not preaching that sermon. I don't want them to repent. They deserve whatever is coming to them. They deserve it. And so he ran away. And in the process of running away, he gets swallowed by a fish and has some time to, you know, 
go into a corner, think about what he's done, and then he gets vomited back up. And God says, you're going to Nineveh. Like, let's, let's get this really clear. Uh, you don't want to fight me on this. You're going to Nineveh, and you're going to preach this message. So he really only preaches half the message. He preaches the half of the message that says, if you don't, like God's coming in 40 days, he's going to wipe all of you out. That's what's going to happen. God's going to destroy you all. And the king of Nineveh hears this message, and he's like, I, I've heard of the God of the Israelites. I know, I know that God. He is actually, he's pretty amazing. Uh, all the stories about him, if they're true, this is not somebody you want to be on the wrong side of. And so the king of Nineveh repents. And then he, re- he, he commands everybody in the whole city to repent. So the whole city repents, and God spares them. And Jonah is furious. He's like, no, these people don't deserve your mercy and kindness. And so God does a, a little object lesson with him at the end about with this, this, the sun and this plant. It's really interesting, you should read it. And the, the point of the object lesson was, yeah, they don't deserve my mercy and kindness and neither do you. None of us deserve it. And we, we wanna decide, like these people, these people are bad, they should be punished and, and I'm, I'm pretty good compared to all those other people and, and, and I, I, I should be blessed and have peace and joy. And God's like, you know what? None, none of you deserve what I'm trying to offer through Jesus. God loves sinners, but he must punish sin. This is, this is something that I think we, um, we can really get behind. And even, friends, even those of your, your friends who don't know Jesus but care about justice and oppression and what's happening in the world, they can get behind, behind this. God cares about it too. Uh, here's here's a, a couple paragraphs from a theologian named Miroslav Volf or John Smith, if you prefer. Um, he says uh, this, I used to think that the wrath, that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? by doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved, being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. Destruction, hurting people, oppression, injustice, it all falls under the power of sin. People have decided, I'm gonna be in charge of what's right and wrong for myself. And God's mission, his goal is to set that all right. In fact, we know there's coming a day in the new creation when, when none of that will be there. God will, God will have dealt with all of the evil in the world. He's going to. And sometimes I think we wanna ask, where is it? <laughs> where, where is God's Judgment on the evil in the world, why is it persisting? And this is where we, we come up against the mercy of God. Here's how Paul talks about it. If we continue our reading in Romans chapter two, here's what he says. He's talking again to the people who were judging those whose sins were worse than theirs were. 
He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says, there is coming a day when God will make everything right. He will deal with all of the evil and oppression and injustice in the world. He will. And until that day, your job is to repent. God's kindness, his patience is intended to lead you to repentance. Here's how Peter says it in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't God dealt with it yet? Why hasn't he just wiped out all the evil? He is waiting. He will deal with it, but he is waiting for people to repent. He has made a way to move out from under the power of sin into life in the spirit. And he is waiting for people to repent. This is exactly what he did for the Canaanites. I mean, you read that story. If you just start in Joshua chapter one, you're like, man, these people, this is not really fair. I mean, this whole nation is coming in. They're just kicking them off of their land. But 400 years before this, when God was walking Abraham through the land of Canaan, and he told Abraham, this is gonna be yours someday. All of this, everything you can see, your descendants will inherit this land. And if I'm Abraham, I'm, I'm kind of asking the question like, wow, what are we waiting for? <laughs> Why not today? And God actually answers that question. He tells Abraham, not yet, because the wickedness of the Canaanites is not yet complete. God says, they, they still have time. They still have a chance to repent. They had opportunity. They had these stories of Abraham. Everyone Abraham ran into in the land of Canaan had heard of Abraham's God. They were like, oh, we know, we know about your God. We know how awesome he is. And then they have this, this, this pretty awesome person that we don't know a whole lot about named Melchizedek who lives right in the center of the land of Canaan, contemporary with Abraham. And he is called a priest of the most high God. And so they've got Melchizedek, who's a priest of God, right there in the middle of their land. They've got the stories of what God has done. And they're gonna have these stories for 400 years. God waits for 400 years for these people to get their act together. And what do they do? They turn further and further away from who they were created to be to the point they're sacrificing their children to false gods. And God finally had enough. But he waited. He was patient. And he's waiting today. And we want God to end all the oppression. We want him to step in and, and, and just wipe out all the people who are doing evil in the world. And God says, I will deal with it. But what I really want is for them to repent. What I really want is for them to change. What I really want is for them to move from death to life, to move from life under sin to power of the spirit. That's really what I want for them. And so God has given us this mission of reflecting his nature and character to the world around us. He has given us the mission of addressing oppression and injustice and evil in the world and saying, why don't you guys do something about it? Why don't you step in and heal and minister to and serve the broken? And I will deal with the evil Someday. God's wrath is a holy expression of his love for sinners. And forgiveness is an expression of God's mercy. What happens when we have this opportunity? And, and the, the, the phrase the scripture uses over and over again is repentance. This, this act of moving from the power of sin to life in the spirit is called repentance. Repentance is this acknowledgement that I am a sinner, that, yeah, I, there's a lot of people, listen, it's really easy for us to find people who are worse than us. They do things that we would never do, and we're like, yeah, those people deserve some wrath, but I'm actually a pretty good person. No, we're all sinners, and repentance is this acceptance. I am a sinner, 
And I am, as a sinner, I am under the wrath of God, but God has made a way for me through Jesus. So I repent of my sin. Repent just means turn around, 180. I'm changing sides. I was on this side. Now I wanna be on this side. And Jesus has made a way for me. So I confess my sin. I repent from my sin. I put it behind me. And I affirm Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord means he gets to be the one who decides what's right and wrong for me. And Savior means he has the power to bring me from death to life. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And so once we make that choice and Jesus becomes Lord and Savior of our lives and we move to life in the spirit, do we stop sinning? Man, I wish we did. (laughs) I wish we could say that, but we don't. Sin continues to creep in. So how do we deal with it? We still need forgiveness. This expression of the mercy of God, we still need it. And so we go through the same process again. We confess our sin, we repent, and we reaffirm Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. Every time sin creeps in, that's gotta be the process. That's gotta be the plan. Because we're no good on our own. We've seen what people can do to each other when they choose to decide for themselves what's right and wrong. But God has offered us a way. So what does that mean for us as the church? We are intended to reflect the nature and character of God that's been his plan from Adam and Eve to Abraham and the Israelites to the church today. We're intended to reflect his nature and character to the world around us. And I think, I think we, we really like the love part. We like the part about like, you know, even the cultural definition of love, like, yeah, let's, let's love everybody, which means like, let's not get in the way of anybody's happiness. That's not really what love means. We, we know how to define love here. If you've been around a while, you know how we define love. I will do what's best for you even if it costs me. That's, that's God's love. So we, we've, gotta, we've gotta demonstrate the love part, but we also have to make people aware that, that there will be judgment on those who choose to live under sin. God's wrath is not against people, but it's against sin. And if you choose to live under the power of sin, you come under the judgment. God's gonna make everything right one day. But man, he, aren't you glad for his patience? Aren't you glad that he, he waits and gives people a chance to repent? Friends, I know I have people in my own life. Like, I can't wait for Jesus to come back, honestly, guys. It's gonna be amazing. But my brother's not ready. And I hope God just waits until my brother repents. Then, then I'm ready but then there'll be somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. And so our job is to make sure everyone knows about the way. There has to be this message that the way of Jesus, this is the gospel. Jesus has made a way. You're not condemned yet. Jesus has made a way. Repent. Live life in the spirit. It's better over here. So that's what we're supposed to do as a church. So uh, as we wrap up, I know this was kind of a lot to take in and and there's more. Hopefully you'll go and read Joshua and you'll read Romans and dig a little deeper into these things. But our, our, our job, what we're left with today is repent. If there's unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin in your life, that, that still puts you in this category. We've got to repent. We've got to deal with it. We can't just say, oh, it's no big deal or I'll deal with it later or God loves me anyway. Yeah, he loves you. And his wrath is a holy expression of his love for sinners. So we've got to deal with it. And then we need to reflect the true nature and character of God to the world around us. What does his love really look like? And we need to be grateful for his patience. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy and kindness. Thank you that we can trust you to stand against evil and injustice and oppression in the world. Thank you 
that we get to look forward to a day when, when you're, all that's gonna be behind us. You're gonna eliminate it. And God, my prayer is this morning that um, we as a church family would just see you more clearly. We would understand a fuller picture of who you are and that we would reflect that full picture to the world around us. As we interact with people who don't know you, that they would see your love and kindness and they would see the danger of the power of sin and they would see that Jesus has made a way for us. Would you communicate that through us as we show and tell the gospel in our daily lives? And God, may we see more and more people who get to make the most of your patience, who get to repent, who get to move from death to life because you've been kind and you've waited. May we get to see how many, many lives changed through the power of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Friends, as we close, I invite you to stand. We're gonna sing a song here. And just encourage you, if if God's put something on your heart, uh, uh, some kind of change you need to make, a step of faith you need to take, and you'd like to talk through that with somebody, um, we'd, we'd love to do that with you. Our pastors here, um, our elders would love to talk, talk through that with you. Just reach out to us, uh, meet us in the lobby or something like that. But I just want to encourage you to, to soak this in and pray. And if repentance needs to happen, make it happen today. If, if, if you need to communicate to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, uh, do, do it today. Take that step today. And uh, let's, let's honor God as we uh, continue to worship.